I'm reading this morning from Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. The parable of the soils. When a great crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from one city after another, he spoke to them in a parable. A farmer went out to scatter his seed. As he was scattering it, some fell on the path where it was crushed, and the birds in the sky came and ate it. Other seed fell on rock. As it grew, it dried up because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorny plants. The thorns grew with the plants and choked them. Still other seed landed on good soil. When it grew, it produced 100 times more grain than was scattered. And he said, he said this, he called out, everyone who has ears should pay attention. His disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, you've been given the mysteries of God's kingdom, but these mysteries come to everyone else in parables, so that when they see, they can't see, and when they hear, they can't understand. The parable means this, the seed is God's word. The seed on the path are those who hear, but then the devil comes and steals the word from their hearts so that they won't believe and be saved. The seed on the rock are those who receive the word joyfully when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but fall away when they are tempted. As for the seed that fell among thorny plants, these are the ones who, as they go about their lives, are choked by concerns, riches, and the pleasures of life, and their fruit never matures. The seed that fell on good soil are those who hear the word and commit themselves to it with a good and upright heart. Through their resolve, they bear fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. We uh, continue our, in our series um, about not perfect, just getting better. And I was thinking about this idea of what we think of when we think of perfect. And I automatically think of the perfect wedding, right? That's what you often hear the associate. And I'll, I'll meet with couples who are planning their, their wedding and you know, there's a lot out in our world that gives us this ideal type of wedding. Like we get this picture in our minds of what the perfect wedding would look like. And how many people watched the royal wedding when it happened just recently, right? Did anybody see that? Yeah, I knew some people, folks. Right. And, and we, we think of this as like the perfect, you know, this might be one of the ideal types or the perfect wedding. And so these uh, couples will come to me and they'll say, we want to plan the perfect wedding wedding. And I usually tell them some very important advice because they come with, to me with this in mind. This is the perfect wedding they have in mind, and they want to plan it, put it together. And I tell them, your wedding's probably going to look more like this. <laughs> I mean, well, every wedding I've been to, something happens that doesn't go as planned. Something goes awry. I've had fire alarms go off in the venues. I've had people lose rings. I've, heard, I've seen tuxes be lost. I've seen uh, wedding licenses be lost or not got picked up at the court office, uh, court headquarters, uh, courthouse, that's it. 
Uh, so all these things go wrong. People don't anticipate. There are just so, so many things out of a couple's control, but there's this ideal that people have in their mind. The brides and the grooms, they come with this ideal. And part of it is, is that we've set up this idea of perfection according to this number one definition, according to Merriam's uh, Webster's Dictionary, is perfect, conforming absolutely, absolutely to the description or definition of an ideal type. That's what we think of when we think of perfection. This absolute conformity to an ideal. And so a lot of times, this is part of our assumption. I would say to you, and the good news is, is that I would tell couples all the time too, and I say, look, you can dream about the ideal type of wedding day all you want, but it's not what makes a great marriage is not whether everything goes as planned. What makes a great marriage is how you respond to the things that aren't planned. That's what makes a marriage, how you respond to the world around you, how you react to the things that don't go well, that did, do fall. But when the cake falls over, you can tell a lot about a couple when the cake falls over, <laughs> how they react, how they respond, what kind of marriage they're going to have. So you can tell a lot of those things, and you don't even need to go through counseling. I'll give a prediction right there when the cake falls over. So, <laughs> but if you know, so that's the, the world's view of perfection. The biblical idea of perfection, and this word perfect is used throughout the Bible, is not that absolute conformity to an ideal type. That's not the biblical definition of perfection. And this is good news, right? <laughs> this is good news that that's not the definition. The Greek word for perfect in the, in the New Testament is teleos, all right? Teleos, T-E-L. So the first three letters of that word in Greek, tell, is also the first three letters we use for telescope. So I want you to get this in mind, this idea of perfection in mind. And so I brought with me an old telescope. All right? So tell, the word tell in the Greek and in the English root means to reach the end. So if you think of this telescope, that perfection is when we can reach the end and see what? Clearly. Completely. We can have it in focus. And as Christians, the idea of perfection is to mature, to grow, to reach the end so that we can see clearly Jesus in us. So that when other people look at us, we have grown to such maturity and completeness in our lives that we, people see Jesus in us. And they see it when we react to the world around us. They see it when something goes unplanned. They look at us and they go, huh, I wonder how they're going to respond to that. That's the idea of Christian perfection. That's the idea of what it means to, be, to, to seek perfection as a Christian is to grow and to mature. And as we heard in the gospel lesson, to bear fruit. That is the sign of maturity. When we're bearing fruit, when we're responding in a way that, that, that is bearing fruit. It's also interesting that this word perfect is often associated with love in the Bible. So when Jesus said to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, do you know what, does anybody remember what Jesus was talking about? If you remember that passage, those of you who studied the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, what was Jesus talking about in that moment? Love your enemies. 
Jesus was teaching that when you love your enemies, you're actually showing the perfect love of God. You've reached the end. <laughs> You've reached the end. The complete, mature, mature and complete love will love your enemies. So that if you and I are having a hard time loving our enemies, maybe we're not mature yet. Also in 1 John, it says perfect love, teleos, love drives out fear. So the context of biblical perfection is not about knowing all the answers. It's not about being an expert. It's not about knowing every piece of theology and being able to explain every piece of theology. It's about how we love other people and respond to other people. And are we growing and learning to love? So I think about this, and so are we learning and growing? But the other thing I would ask in the passage actually presents to us this morning is what's preventing us from maturing? What's preventing us from growing? What's preventing us from becoming more clear in how we're more like Christ in our lives and responding like Jesus would respond to the world around us when things don't go well? How are we reflecting the love of Jesus Christ in our own lives? What does that maturity and fruitfulness look like? And what's getting in the way of that? Well, the passage brings, it gives us some suggestions, but I want to raise one that I keep stumbling across many, many times over and over again. And that is one of the things that prevents people from growing and receiving the word of God is other Christians. Think about it. When someone, because part of the problem is, is that when someone says they're a Christian, we look, begin to look at them and what definition of Christian do we place on them then? When they, when they say they're a Christian, we begin to place this, pers- this assumption on them that they're going to be absolutely, completely conformed to being like Jesus. We have this absolute conformed ideal type in our minds, and we expect them to live that out. And then they don't. They don't live it out. They don't live up to our ideal. They don't live up to our expectation. They don't live up to our perfect Christian image that we've somehow got in our minds for them. <laughs> for them. And so they, that begins to become problematic. A lot of people love to quote Gandhi here. You know that famous quote from Mahatma Gandhi where he said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now there's some truth here, isn't there? Right? Because I think Gandhi correctly said, you know, I like Christ, right? I mean, I think we're all here to some degree because we're attracted to who Jesus is and we're trying to follow Jesus or learn about Jesus and we want to grow more like Jesus and become Christ-like. And I believe that Gandhi saw that. Now, by the way, I hope nobody runs out of church after this sermon because last time I used Gandhi, that quote in a sermon, I had two people leave the church because I quoted Gandhi. Wasn't the perfect sermon, I guess. But my point of quoting Gandhi is not because I'm endorsing Gandhi, (laughs) but I'm beginning to show us, begin to look at what it is to be a Christian. Now, he says also that your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I actually think as challenging as Gandhi was in that statement, he also was making an assumption. Because what was he comparing? He was comparing every other Christian to the ideal type, which is Christ. 
He was saying Christ ought to be like, everybody ought to be like Jesus. I agree with that. But what Gandhi failed to see was that people are in a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And some of us, for some of us, that takes a lifetime. We have Jesus. And so to become more like Jesus, to become more like Christ is a process. And what, so what Gandhi was doing in his mind was saying, look, I like Jesus. But everybody else I'm looking at is here. And so, yeah, I wouldn't like, I don't like those people either compared to Jesus, but I think the comparison really is, if I look at a person like this, have they grown any, right? Have they matured any? Have they moved towards Christ-likeness in their life in some way? That's the comparison, not the absolute ideal that Gandhi had in his mind. And so I think, on the one hand, Gandhi challenges us, but also, on the other hand, I think Gandhi makes a huge assumption and not a correct assumption as well. So this is the assumption that a lot of people make about Christians. And so they, they look at other Christians and they go, well, they're not like Jesus, so don't need to follow him. No good. See, proof. Right? You ever hear that? So that's a lot of what we hear in our society about Christianity. And the other Christians can become a stumbling block. But here's what I would suggest to you. Our focus is not to be on other Christians. Our focus is not to be comparing ourselves to other Christians. Our focus is to be on Jesus. Our clarity, what we want to get clear about is more clear about what Je- who Jesus is and who Jesus wants me to be. That's what I want to get clear about as a Christian. Not what other people expect of me, not what other people expect of you, but we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep focused on Jesus. And so even when other people come and say, hey, those Christians, they're not doing a good job, I I go, I agree. But keep your eyes on Jesus. You and I are called to follow Jesus, not other Christians. So that's part of that. So that's that's something that gets in the way of people following Christ. I think the other thing is that and this is what I'm hearing more of today, is that Christ followers give up on becoming mature. They just give up. So when I think about this, I've, I've had several discussions, actually very recently, I've had these discussions, and they kind of go the same way, and that is that people come and they say, well, you know, I used to be a Christian, or I used to be in the church, or I was living the faith, and I stopped. And so I always ask them, you know, what, what's going on? Like, what, what, what made you make that decision? And a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm against organized religion. I go, me too, I'm against organized religion. Uh, because it's not about organized religion. It's about a relationship with God. But I hear people, you know, some about the church, a denomination, organized religion, or they just kind of gave up. Like, they got discouraged. They got disappointed. Uh, in probably other Christians, and so they just give up. That's exactly what the gospel lesson is saying today, that there are people who just give up, and that's why they never grow, never reach maturity, never produce fruit, is because they give up on following Jesus. The passage actually talks about three different types of giving up. One, there's actually no giving up. There's actually the path, and then some of the seed falls on the path, and Birds come along and eat it up. What I love about this passage is, let me point out here, notice how liberal the farmer is with the seed. 
Like the farmer is not worried about where the seed is falling. Like I think, I look at that and I go, uh, you want to put the seed in the good soil. You don't want to just throw it any, anywhere it goes. But the, what you, the image we get from this passage he's saying is that, that God is this, this farmer that just is throwing seed everywhere to anybody. And if you've ever seen a plant grow up in the crevice of a rock, you realize why. Because <laughs> you never know where something's going to grow. And I love that about this passage, is that God is just scattering seed wherever it goes and seeing what kind of response there is. But the first response is the path and the seed. And it's kind of like taking the, the person and putting them in a box and setting it on a shelf. That is never gonna, it's never going to be used. It's, never gonna, it's just going to collect dust. And so many of us collect dust. The seed never gets in. The Word of God never gets into us. And so we never grow. That's part of what happens. But the two parts that we really are about giving up, the first part is about the rocks. The seed falls in the rocks, and it doesn't have anywhere to go. The roots can't get down because of the obstacles in the, in the soil. And the water comes, but the roots aren't there to hold the water and hold on to it. And so these these roots wither and die. These plants wither and die, and so they never bear fruit. They basically give up because of temptation. So what happens to maturity there is that what happens is they, they initially they grow, but then when temptation comes along or something happens, or there's an obstacle, there's difficulty, or there's disappointment, they just not only not grow, they wither away. And they put themselves back in the box. And then there's the thorns, the thorns are like the ones that grow, and I think this is where a lot of us may find ourselves. We'll grow, but then we're growing alongside some other things, some thorns, some distractions, cares of the world, other things that are going on in the world, and we grow to a certain extent, but the point here is they just stop growing. They've done a lot of research in Christian circles around Christianity today in America, and that we get to a certain point, and then we as Christians kind of stagnate. And we kind of stop growing. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. And part of it is, is because we're trying to live the American dream and we want to be like Christ. <laughs> and at some point, our dream to be more like Jesus is going to be, come in conflict with our dream to be Americans, <laughs> to live the American dream. It's going to come in conflict at some point. And that's what's going to choke us out. That's going to stop our growth. Because I think the temptation for us as Americans is to try and do both at the same time. But at some point, this conflict is going to come in. And you and I are going to have to make a decision of whether we want to get more like Jesus or more like an American. We want to get more like Jesus or do we want to get more into the things that the world has to offer us? That's the care. That's the thing that stops our growth. And I think that's what's happening in American Christianity. So those are some of the ways that we never mature. But I want you to look at this passage again. I want you to look at the last verse. Verse 15. Let's look at this together. Notice this. The seed that fell on good soil are those who hear the word and commit themselves to it. With a good and upright heart, through their resolve they bear fruit. You hear those two words? I want to point out those two words, commitment and resolve. The reason that some people bear fruit is because they stay committed 
and they stay resolute in their pursuit of being like Jesus. They don't give up on it. They don't quit. They don't give up too soon. They don't let the cares of the world choke them out. They, don't, they continue to develop roots that go down into the soil so they can get the nourishment. They do whatever they can to grow no matter whatever the circumstances there are. And again, if you've ever seen, if you've ever walked through a mountainside or walked up into a rocky mountain area around here in the Northwest, have you ever seen a flower growing in the crack of a rock? Right? That's resolve. Should have put that image on the screen. Sorry. But that's the resolve. That's commitment. And I think that's what it means to grow, to bear fruit, is to be committed to it. Because fruit is the sign of spiritual maturity. And the fruit of love is the sign of Christian maturity. How we respond in love to other people around us is important. I think also we as a church have adopted some practices. We've adopted core practices, and those core practices actually help us grow when we practice them, when we stay committed to them, when we're resolved to them, when we live honestly about where we're at in our relationship with God. When we mean live honestly, we're saying, hey, don't go around pretending that you're here fully grown, fully mature, fully complete, when you're really here, right? That's living honestly. That's being authentic. Because a lot of Christians, you know, we, I don't know if you did this this morning. Maybe you did. Maybe before you came to church, you said, you know, right today, I'm like, here, me and Jesus, I'm like this far along in my relationship with Jesus. I, I'm, I've been following Jesus, but I haven't grown a whole lot. But I'm going to church today, so I'm going to pretend I'm here. Does anybody do that? Come on. I do it. Because that, but that's not living honestly, is it? We need to be honest about where we're at in our Christian growth and where we are at in becoming more like Jesus. But here's the thing, is you and I that are sitting in this community, we need to stop looking at other people and say, oh, you know, they haven't grown that much. I mean, they should be here and they're only here. We also have to stop doing that. How many times have you sat in a sermon and said, boy, I'm glad they're here today. I'm glad that person over there is here to hear that sermon or hear that scripture read. Boy, they really need it. That's part of the problem. (laughs) Because we keep expecting people to conform to our ideal type rather than encouraging people to be conformed to the image of Jesus and saying, my hope for you is that you would become more like Christ. How can I encourage you to become more like Christ? How can I help you become more like Christ? That's part of teach one another. Practice hospitality. Invite other people to follow Jesus. This isn't because we arrive. This is because we want other people to grow and become mature themselves and do justice. When we do justice in the world, we dig up some of those rocks and we dig up some of that hard soil that people have, have tramped because they've been trampled on. The soil gets hard because people keep walking on it. It gets hard, the path gets hard because people keep trampling on the soil. And so what we have to do is we kind of have to cordon off the path. If we want to restore the path and make it receptive to see, we actually have to block off people from trampling on it any further. We need to stop the trampling, and we need to get out the pickaxe, and we need to get out the shovel, and we got to turn the soil over and expose it to oxygen and rain and water, and we got to get people to stop walking on other people and trampling on other people, sometimes, unfortunately, in the name of God. So we have to stop it. That's to do justice. There's also other things that mature us. Worship, Bible study, 
prayer, Christian conversation. When's the last time that you and I had a conversation with another Christian about where we were at in our relationship with Jesus? Just an honest conversation and encourage one another in our relationship with Jesus. Accountability, service, solitude, silence, journaling, communion. These are all practices that help us grow. We don't stop doing them as Christians. To kind of bring the point home, let me ask you a question. I want you to remember back to growing up. And what, are your, what did your parents feed you when you were growing up? I can remember my dad grilling barbecue chicken on the grill in the summertime. I love my dad's barbecue chicken. I remember along with dad's barbecue chicken, mom would make three bean casserole. Anybody remember three bean casserole? If you've ever been to a church potluck, you've been to three bean casserole. <laughs> or green bean casserole with the little onion things on top, right? That's good stuff. So I remember those things that my parents would feed me, right? They would also say stuff to me like this, eat your vegetables. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Eat your broccoli, your Brussels sprouts, your green beans, your spinach. Blech. But you can't leave the table until you've done what? Eat your vegetable, clean your plate, right? I've learned to clean my plate to this day. That's why I keep gaining weight. <laughs> but I want to ask you about those dinners. Let me ask this other question. What did you eat the, week, the first week in November, your seventh grade year of school? Does anybody remember? You, how many, anybody remember what you ate the, week of no, the first week in November when you were in seventh grade? Nobody. Nobody remembers? Oh, so some of you remember, all right. <laughs> You're guessing though, right? You're assuming this is what you ate. So, because that's what your mom or dad fed you every week, right? So I want you to think about that. So if you can't remember, let me ask this question this way. Did you eat that week? How many people, raise your hand if you know you ate dinner that week. Oh, so you did eat, even though you can't remember what you ate. A lot of people say, well, I, you know, I go to church and I can't even remember the sermon. I, I go to church, I can't remember what the scriptures were. I can't remember the songs we sang. I can't remember what I preached two weeks ago. I think it was Easter, was it? Was it Easter? <laughs> My point is this. What if you didn't eat? What if you didn't show up at the dinner table? When, you know, when, when mom would come out to the door and yell, dinner time, I would show up at the table. In fact, I often ran to the table, even though there were vegetables on it, because I knew I needed to eat. And because I ate, I grew. <laughs> because I ate, I grew. And every time I got called to dinner, I came to the dinner table because I knew it was good for me. I knew that I would grow, even though not every meal was great. Not every meal was what I wanted. Not every meal do I remember. But they fed me. Do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what Jesus taught? Jesus replied in Matthew chapter 4, he says, It is written, people don't live only by bread, 
but by every word spoken by God. The parable today was about God's word getting into us. Jesus taught that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by the word of God. We, we, it nourishes us. It strengthens us. We have to show up at the table to get it. That means we keep showing up in worship. We keep showing up in Bible studies. We keep showing up at the Lord's table in, in communion. We keep showing up at all those places, all those kitchen, the kitchen table in somebody's house, having a Christian conversation or holding each other accountable or having a cup of coffee in a coffee shop somewhere. These are all important places where we hear the word of God and it nourishes us and strengthens us and helps us to grow. But we have to keep showing up, even if it's not our favorite meal, because it'll strengthen us. And you know what? Here's the other thing that will happen. Some of those meals are going to be really great. Some of those are going to be great meals that you're going to remember. They're going to be barbecue chicken and three bean casserole meals. But keep eating. Keep showing up at the table. It's that practice that will help us become mature and complete in Christ. Let's pray together.